Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for April 28, 2019. I'm your host, coming back to the show, David McLaughlin, and welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And as always, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh, good to be back on the show and really excited about our guest tonight. Uh, join us for the second time. Um, uh, all the time contributor to ABC News, uh, was the campaign manager for the Bush campaign in 2004. Uh, Matthew Dowd, one of our favorite guests we've ever had. So lucky to have him back on in about 20 minutes. And then we got other stuff to talk about, including governor ratings later in the show. And we kind of thought it was time to do a, a pretty big round of buy, sell, hold with more names getting in. And we just kind of pushed it because we've had other things to talk about, but, but we want to go ahead and try to catch up, if you will, because honestly, eventually, since this is like a stock market, we're going to have to come back around because it's not like everything is static. People do improve and decline uh, over time, so we we got to get at least the first run on all these folks. And this past week, um, I guess it's the, the one version of official with an announcement on social media uh, former Vice President Joe Biden is in the race. Um, we've been expecting it for quite some time, but it's, I guess, the level of official where there's a committee set up and uh, he has a logo and what have you. Um, Tim, buy, sell, hold on Joe Biden. Well, uh, certainly buy on this one uh, because he enters the race as uh, the number one contender, at least according to the polls. He certainly is as well known as as anyone out there that's running. Uh, he might be the last major candidate to get on, uh, get in the race, too, so I don't know if anybody else will enter the race, you know, with a splash, and, un, unless one or two more does it, and we'll be talking about them, of course, but definitely a buy on this one. All right, Catherine, your thoughts. Well, I'm going to be very contrary and say definitely a sell. I am not happy about this. I do not think he's a good candidate. Um, I know he's very popular and he he's risen in the polls, but I think he would be we would be much better served to have him stumping for all the other candidates and stumping for Democrats and hopefully and perhaps with his good friends. Obama I think he is um, I, I just don't I just don't I watched him for a full hour on the view yesterday I just don't see him uh, pre- as presidential at all so I know it's very contra- controversial well, but that's what I that's what I think yeah and I guess t- two ways to look at it and is there's a kind of a you know like a stock analyst would just on the numbers and then there might be a you know kind of what you want to see and I guess that can um, impact the decision. 
I, I mean, I would have to say he's he's a, he's a buy because it, it's kind of like you know stocks. And if you have Coke, I mean, Coke is probably not going to grow much just because they have this face in them and that face in them. People, you know, wanting less sugar in their diet and everything else. But at the end of the day, they sell millions of cans of soda. And, you know, they're getting into this and getting into that. I mean, just based on market share, you know, they're the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla. Joe Biden is leading, you know, virtually every poll. And in some things he's had to actually talk about, like the fact that he is um, has more of a physical nature about his politics, um, it didn't seem to hurt his numbers any. And in, in, our, in this climate we're in, if something was, it seems like that might have. And with that not hurting him, that just, to me, seemed like he's going to be a stronger force in the race. Um, I mean, his age is obviously, you know, pretty different. I mean, we think Donald Trump's old. Joe Biden is several years older than than um, Donald Trump, just like Bernie Sanders is. But, um, you know, this is math, and, and these polls, whether they're state polls or national polls, have him, you know, like virtually leading every race, and even open-ended ones where they say, you know, who do you like? Um, you know, with, without even, you know, giving a list of candidates, I think he was at 12 in the ABC poll. Saddest number for that poll, guys, though. Uh, Donald Trump was at 1% of Democrats tied with Hillary Clinton, Cory Booker, and others. Uh, so 1% of people calling their self-Democrats uh, identified wanting to vote for Donald Trump, which was kind of sad. Uh, Catherine, yeah, I- do you kind of see what I'm saying about – oh, who's, who's breaking in? Tim? No, go, go ahead, Kat. Well, oh, yeah, I was I mean, just we can all add something to watch. Go ahead, Tim. I was just going to add something right quick to what you were saying, David. Um, this thing is, we're just talking about where this is right now. In a recent poll, they just asked prospective voters, okay, does this race have a favorite? And 54% of the respondents said, no, it does not. So, you know, today's favorite might be in fourth place a week from now. Uh, It's 281 days until the Iowa caucuses. Uh, A lot's going to change between now and then. So I I guess what I'm trying to say is when we're doing this buy, sell, and hold, I guess we're doing it just for today, right? Yes, snapshot of the current environment. But, uh, Catherine, I'm going to frame a question to you. Um, I mean, do you kind of – when you look at just – Mathematically, just where he stands in the race. I mean, do you? Where do you think his position is, and what what do you think his um, obstacles will be? I think his obstacles are going to be his voting history, his um, his uh, that's the that's going to be a big thing. He's been around for a long time. He's voted on a lot of things. There, it's gonna it's gonna ang- some of those votes are going to anger. Democrats and some of them are going to anger uh, Republicans. So there's that. Um, I just don't see him as I just don't see him as presidential at all. And um, I mean, I like the guy. I honestly think he would be the be- the best thing for him to do would be, like I said, pounding the pavement for Democrats. He is inspiring. He is compassionate. But I just I'm, I'm, I mean, I understand what you're saying about the numbers, but my question is, 
if he wasn't in the race, what would the numbers look like? I, yeah, and that they is a good question. I will say this. I, I mean, there is a little bit of a personal ego thing when you say, I'm putting my name out there to run for president, really any office. Because, I mean, can either of y'all name somebody that stumped for George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Franklin Roosevelt? Um, you, you know, does history remember the people that were great advocates in the campaign, or do they remember the person that actually had the name on the ballot? Um, so I don't I, – well, there's probably I, a little bit of ego I mean, saying, if I can always, win it, why don't I try to take it? He's already in history as the, as, the, as the vice president for eight years to one of the most popular and successful presidents in our history. So he's already in the history books. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but, I mean, I, I guess it, it has to – that has to do with ego over, um, you know – over the best thing for the country, the best thing for the party. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that uh, John Garner and and Harry Truman were both vice presidents for one of the best presidents in our nation's history. Uh, Harry Truman, we know just a little bit more because he took that next step, um, and you know, had six, seven years of his own term. Tim, break in here. Well, uh, oh, first of all, by the way, John Nance Garner did did give out the old warm bucket of spit, uh, spit line. So, I mean, you know, that that's that's worth mentioning right there. You know <laughs> what I mean? Um, as, as far as, you know, it's Potomac fever. I, I'm sure first-term congressmen are sitting up there right now trying to figure out how they can someday be president. They, they all uh, uh, are like that. I personally think any any congressman or senator worth their salt probably considers it at some point. And this is Joe Biden's last chance. This is it. This is his last chance. We know that, that he's run a couple of times before he wants to be president. He's always wanted to be president. I think it sticks in his crawl that he believes he probably missed what turned out to be a golden opportunity in 2016, and and he didn't and he didn't go after it because, you know, it, I, I, of his son's death, and a lot of Democrats thought that he couldn't win because his numbers as vice president were not as good as they are now. That's another thing. He's in the race now. Let's see what those numbers do. Because he's, you know, he's going to start getting looked at a lot closer. As Catherine mentioned, his voting record has some things in it, and it's a very lengthy one that's easy to find something not to like in a lengthy voting record in, in Congress and, and, you know, some things that they've said, too. So, you know, uh, but still, right now, he's he's at the top of the top of the heap. So I, I, I got I to I gotta buy him. Yeah, and, and there's kind of two more things with Joe Biden I think you have to discuss. And But let's go with the one that we just mentioned, his voting record. Um, he, he's been in elective office longer than I've been alive. I mean, he won office back, well, about 1970, um, and that was the U.S. Senate. He made 72. 72. 72. And he had an office right. before that, didn't he? So he's, that's what I'm saying. He's been in elect, elective office, I heard, more than 50 years. I'm not 50, so that's where I got my math from there. Um but then isn't it kind of where if he had a vote somewhere in 72 or 74 or 78, um, even later, 
is that going to be looked at differently than the voters that something he might have done and or said in 2008, 2010, kind of after he became, you know, Barack Obama's um, vice president. I, I mean, you probably couldn't say that that was Joe Biden's second act. That may have been Joe Biden's third or fourth act. His career's been so long, but isn't kind of it's going to be kind of pre-Barack Obama, pre or uh, post-Obama, and how people, a lot of people, not everybody, but how a lot of people look at him. Catherine, do you think there's going to be some, you know? When did it get voted on? Kind of look at his, his voting history. Oh, I think there's be, there'll be some of that, but there may be. I, I mean, I have not looked at all his votes, but I know he's got some uh, votes with the NRA from way back then. And it, I, I think the question is going to be: Did he vote on something in the '70s that has an, has had an impact uh, going forward uh, into into today? And I think that's going to be what we look at. We're also going to be looking at some of his personal failings. And I mean, I just think there's a lot when you've been in office for 50 years, there's a lot to look at a lot of remarks, a lot of um, votes, a lot of speeches. And, you know, there's going to be uh, both Democrats and Republicans looking at that stuff and bringing it up. And um, I, that's a, I mean, if I, I mean, I'm sure he's looked at it. I'm sure he's got, hopefully, got a good answer to him. Though he didn't have a really good answer on the view about the Anita Hill um, situation. And of all the things he should have been prepared for, that was the one, and he wasn't prepared. Well, the the, the next, uh, well, kind of a piggyback on that is, um, I remember when they asked a few weeks ago, um, Stacey Abrams about. Candidates in general, but particularly, they, I think Joe Biden was specifically mentioned, how do we judge candidates? And she said something to the effect of, if perfection is our gauge, then, you know, who's going to come out, um, you know, good in that? I, I mean, what bar do we have? Because we know every, there's been criticisms of every single one of these candidates because no one's going to be perfect on, oh, I'm not looking you know, for some perfection. folks' gauge. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that we have perfection in any of them, but I think, I mean, I just stand by what I say. I don't see him as presidential. I just don't. Yeah, I mean, mean, that's that's going to be where that bar is for most Americans. Some people are going to have a tighter bar. Some people are going to have a tighter bar on certain issues than others. Uh, And and then the next question, electability. Um, I think more and more we're seeing uh, that a lot of Democrats are saying, who can beat Donald Trump? You know, maybe we'd like this, maybe we'd like that, but at the end of the day, if we get this, that, and the other we'd like in the nomination, but then we don't win the presidency, we have another term of Donald Trump. Um, how much does that play in Joe Biden's favor, the electability question, Tim? Plays into it a great deal. Trump himself is, is very concerned about that because uh, he – is very afraid that Biden could pe- appeal to uh, some of the people up in the uh, Rust Belt and in Pennsylvania and those places uh, that actually voted uh, for Barack Obama and then turned around and voted for him, the white working class voters, because Biden was one of those people. He's from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he speaks he speaks their language, and, and so Trump is concerned about that. If you flip it the other way, though, when we're talking about electability, especially in the primaries, uh, 
What do we have when we turn uh, south from New Hampshire? We have South Carolina, Georgia, some of these other states down here where African Americans, what they think begins to really, really, really matter. Catherine mentioned the Anita Hill thing. How much would that hurt Joe Biden? Uh, that remains to be seen. So, you know, he's still got to run the gauntlet of of the primaries with those sort of questions. And I'm here to tell you that you are not going to get the Democratic nomination without strong support from African Americans. Just ask Bernie Sanders three years ago, because that's exactly probably why he lost the nomination. Um, so... But electability is, is going to be everything. That's that's going to be the number one issue for Democrats next year, David, in answer to your question. we got to beat Donald Trump. Who is the best person to do it? And I, I believe whoever Democrats perceive to be the best person to do it is probably going to be the person that wins the nomination, even in this large field. Yes. Uh, well, let's move on to another candidate. I don't even know if we'll have the full time on this one, but it's the candidate that's probably been in the race the longest that we haven't covered. And I, I guess I'll be honest, at first glance, I didn't even see him as one of the more serious candidates, but he's done a good job with earned media um, and kind of pierced that filter to get in the conversation with some of the sitting senators, former congressmen, and what have you. And that's uh, entrepreneur Andrew Yang. Um, and he's able to, to, to generate press, which is a skill. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about him next. And, uh, Catherine, you're, you buy, sell, hold on Andrew Yang. I'm going to sell. I, just, I don't see where he fits into the, to the, um, to the conversation. Um, I don't think he, you know, he doesn't have very good name recognition. And I, I mean, I don't really even know what he stands for, except that I know he's against circumcision. Like, why do I even know that about him? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I know that is kind of something that he's known for. And I think when they interviewed on the Daily Show, it became a big part of the bit, which um, is it, it, kind of a crazy thing because I mean, I don't even know if there's polling on that, but that just gets a little personal and a little weird. A lot of quick. Um, Tim, your thoughts on Andrew Yang by so old? Oh, yeah, I'm a Catherine. I'm, I'm going to sell this guy, and, and, you know, probably because of who he is more than anything. What is he? A businessman that hasn't held political office. Now, gee, where have I heard of that before? That would be just about the last thing that I believe any Democratic primary voter would be looking to find uh, somebody from the same background as Trump to run against Trump. I, that's, there's just no way, and I, I, I don't think he'll crack the, even the, the – he might accidentally crack the top ten. He's not going to get to the top tier of candidates. I'm selling him. Yeah, I, and I'll say this. I, I will say, like, if someone had the profile of, like, a – a tech startup and made, you know, truly, you know, they pulled themselves up from their bootstraps, made their own business, kind of be looked at a little bit different than Trump because, you know, Donald pulled himself up on Fred's uh, bootstraps, um, 
you know, that that's kind of to be a big difference. I'm going to go ahead and finish this one out, and I'm going to sell on Andrew Yang, too, as a candidate. But he gets the buy of actually getting in our segment, which we originally didn't put him in. But now I want to shift gears and welcome our guest for the second time to the Kudzu Vine, Mr. Matthew Dowd. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, always a pleasure for us. Um, well, Matthew, we're going to talk to you tonight about uh, a lot of national issues, but one that caught my attention a few weeks on Twitter, you were talking about how Democrats can take back the U.S. Senate, and you mentioned a Senate race that I don't think is on the radar, but the kind of seat Democrats would have to put in play to retake the Senate, and that's the uh, seat in Louisiana of uh, John Kennedy. Um, what makes you think that that seat could be um, – you know, moved over to the Democratic column? Um, well, a couple of reasons why I think it would be smart for the Democrats to do that. Um, the first is uh, because of Donald Trump's job approval rating around the country, um, uh, and we, as we saw in 2018, he shows he's not, he's not running expe- especially strong um, just about anywhere. He's not going to have anywhere that near the margins that he had um, in 2016 that he had in 2020 um, because of where he stands on this. And obviously a lot depends on his, uh, who his democratic opponent is. But I think um, one is the unpopularity of Donald Trump makes it more amenable Two that we saw the results um, in uh, the special elections in Louisiana that showed the Democrats winning in places um, and in districts that Donald Trump carried, um, which I think is a good indicator. And three one of the things, the lessons I think the Democrats should learn from 2018 is they should run candidates in every place they can because they don't know this. We're in such a disruptive time and where the voters are so dissatisfied uh, in many ways with both parties in a lot of places that races become available um, that don't we don't otherwise know about um, because we're in this disruptive moment. And Democrats were smart. They ran play people for the house and statewide in a lot of places that a lot of people didn't give them a chance and some of which they won. And so um, I think that's a really smart strategy, be competitive everywhere. But I also think it wasn't too long ago, as you know, full well, that Louisiana was a battleground state. And I think it may be like Texas where I live, um, maybe returning to that status again. And so I think it'd be a smart move. Well, and now let's talk about some names. Uh, I mean, do they go with a heavy hitter like New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, who apparently, you know, looked at the idea of running for president, maybe a sitting congressman like Cedric Richmond? Or could they get this done with maybe a more of a purple former congressman like Don Cashew or Charlie Malasa? Are there other names? Well, I um... – I'm sure there's going to be multiple names of people and people that don't that career because they think it's too much of a long shot in their mind, which I think is a mistake. Um, I think at this time, it's much better to be running from somebody that's done work outside of Washington than somebody that's currently in Washington. Washington and the Congress is such a negative rating that you're much better off finding candidates that have run for local offices or haven't been involved in Washington in the last few years. I think Mitchell Andrew, I mean, obviously he's got the name. He's, it's a, uh, a, he's got the name that sort of fits Louisiana and has obviously got a huge history, political history there. But he's also, I think, done a really good job of trying to sort of 
um, mend some of the racial divide and try to figure out steps forward. So I don't know if he wants to do it. Um, I'm impressed by him um, and uh, some of the speeches he's given. But I would vote for somebody outside of Washington as a candidate to go against Cassidy than I would somebody in Washington. Okay, and I apologize. I had the wrong senator up. Um, Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Uh, for me. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Tim and Catherine, and they'll probably bring it back to me for some more national questions. Tim? Sure. Uh, good evening, Mr. Dowd. Thank you for being on with us tonight. I wanted to um, ask you a couple of questions about about the Mueller report and, and then move on to some candidate stuff. Um, is any forthcoming change, now that we've had over a week to look at this, is any forthcoming change as a result of this report best left to the American people at the voting booth next year and not anything the Congress might choose to do? Well, I think, you know, we've learned in congressional hearings, and we certainly, and I was uh, came of age during Watergate. That's when actually I got interested in politics when I was 12 or 13 watching the Watergate hearings. I think from a fact that we don't know, obviously, we don't know if there's other facts that could be presented. But I think by mere fact of, of having public hearings where the, some of the players, many of the players that were mentioned in the Mueller report, actually speak publicly and answer questions can have a greater impact than a written report. And we saw that during Watergate, there was briefings done, there was reports given, but when people stood up, raised their right hand and swore to tell the truth and then implicated Richard Nixon in a lot of different things, it had a monumental impact on the American public because everybody was attuned to it. So I don't know if there's additional facts, but I can tell you that a public hearing of some kind of some kinds, which I think the Congress plans on doing even separate from impeachment, could have a deeper impact on the American public. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, we we run into the fact that unlike the Congress of 1973-1974, this Congress is divided. The president's party is in charge of the Senate And it seems to have emboldened this administration to resist any attempt at cooperation, even to the point of ignoring subpoenas. Can these House committees even conduct, you know, substantial hearings uh, without without any cooperation at all from the executive branch? Well, I think you raised a good point, and I mentioned this in a column I wrote last week about though there are some similarities, there are some big differences. One of the biggest differences being the U.S. Senate was held by Democrats by large margin in 1973, Mm -hmm. and Republicans hold it today. That's one big difference. There was no Fox News in in 1973 (laughs) that, that daily defends the president, so Richard Nixon didn't have his version of Fox News, and three, the social media on the Internet provides a place for Donald Trump's base to talk to each other and stay strong amongst each other so they don't feel like they're singled out alone. And so those three differences, I think, make it very difficult to actually convict the president. I think the president could be impeached, but obviously conviction happens in the Senate. I think that's very, very hard, absent, absent something else. I think in the end, the House committees will get 
the cooperation they probably require, but it may mean that we're going to have to test some court cases in the judicial branch that will force people in the executive branch uh, to testify. So I think some will come of their own volition. I, I think I believe that they'll cut a deal and allow certain people to testify. But I think Democrats will subpoena. If the subpoena isn't honored, then I think they'll take it to court, and that's where we'll be. That's where we'll be. That's where it'll be fought over. Hmm. Okay. Now, right quick before I send it to, uh, to Catherine for a round of questions, I want to turn to the presidential race and ask you about a candidate from your state. That's Beto O'Rourke. Um, yes. He had a rally the other day. To, UNLV and only about 35 people showed up. It turns out that UNLV is something of a commuter school, and there's hardly anybody there at the time that he was there. And it seems that that should be something that a staff should know. Uh, Buttigieg seems to have surged past O'Rourke and taken his spot in the top tier and at the same time, it just seems that Beto O'Rourke's campaign is deflating just a little bit. Is that the perception that you're getting of his candidacy right now, or am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong. I think you're right on all counts on that. And I think Beto obviously came into this thing with huge, huge fanfare. And mm-hmm. I think people expected more of him when he came into this race. He obviously raised a lot of money in the first few days, but money's not going to make in the end, make this, make the winner happen. It's going to be how you connect with people and whether or not you have a strategy in place and all that. And so I think he's been, he's been jumped over by Buttigieg. And I don't think, I think there only is only an on one opportunity left for Beto. It's not going to be from holding rallies around the country or standing on tables or whatever, it is, and I like Beto. I, I mean, I know him um, as I've known him for a few years. I mean, I think he's a uh, decent guy, good man. But I think he's going to have to shine in the debates and on the stage in contrast to other candidates. And if he doesn't, those first ones, as you know, are in June, and then there's another set in July, and then they, there's mm-hmm. a series of them. He, he could be in serious trouble in this race if he doesn't shine in those first few months of debate by the fall of 2019. Because if he's not getting moving past four or 5%, which is what Buttigieg has already done, then I think he's in serious, he's in serious, serious jeopardy uh, of, even if he has the money of not having any room in this race. So he's got to better perform well at those debates coming up. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine. Catherine. Hi, Matthew. Great to have you on. I feel like I know you because I Catherine. see you on ABC all the time because I watch Good Morning America and I watch this week. So it's nice to actually talk to you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. My question is about, um, you know, everybody keeps talking about how this election in 2020 is going to be all about Trump. And while I, you know, I agree with that, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So have, you know, uh, a lot of voters who have been, feel disenfranchised by both parties and how are these are how are our 2020 candidates uh going to prevail over trump by fighting against trump but also representing um policies and values that will appeal to voters who you know in the past 
either haven't voted or have voted sporadically. So how do we balance that? I mean, I think it's a fine line between being against against Trump and for all these other things. Um, well, I think that's the uh, that's the art of the campaign in a presidential race, being able to do both of those things simultaneously. And there, somebody's going to have to be able to do that. I think there's an there interesting stat is is that presidential reelects are uh, yes, the other candidate matters a lot, and how they conduct a campaign matters. But what most matters, what most determines whether a president is reelected, is what is their job approval rating go into election day. What is their job approval rating in t- October 2020? Every president that has run for re-election in the last 70 years has gotten the percentage of votes of exactly what their job approval rating was going into election day. So if yours was like Ronald Reagan's 58 or 59 percent job approval, he got 58 or 59 percent. If yours was Barack Obama at 51 percent in 2012, he got 51 percent of the vote. George Bush was at 50% job approval in 2004, he got 50% of the vote. And so, so much depends on where that job approval number is. Um, And then I think it has to be a Democratic campaign. If the job approval number is below 45 or 44, if it's below that, Donald Trump is in serious trouble, no matter the type of campaign the Democrats run. If his job approval rating is at 46 or 47 or 48, then, then the Democratic candidate, whoever that is, is going to have to be able to run the exact kind of campaign you have, which is why prosecute the case about why Donald Trump hasn't been good for the country and hasn't been good as America's place in the world. Prosecute that case, but simultaneously say what they want to do and what their vision of America is post-2020. You have to be able to do both, but pay attention to that job approval number. That's really – I didn't I didn't know that um, little bit of data. That's very interesting. I'll be watching that number. <laughs> And what do you think about, um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, and and now we've got uh, Biden in the race and we've got um, Bernie, sort of the old white guys, and then we've got a lot of young people. (laughs) I mean, I I, I don't like, I'm not an ageist. Like, if you're you're in good shape and can handle it, I'm I'm fine if you're 75 years older, however. But what do you, how do you think it looks? to the voters, like, do do you think that that age and um, experience are will will outweigh uh, youth and uh, enthusiasm? Um, uh, no, and I'm not a believer in. I know a lot of people talk about lanes and race race and who's in what lane and who's going to win. I don't. I don't think this. Uh, to me, it's 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 a lot like a golf tournament where you have to be good with all the clubs. You just can't be good with the driver or you can't be good on the green or you can't be good with your mid irons or you can't be good out of the trap. You have to be good in all areas. So you have to be able to run in all lanes and be able to be all successful in a large field to be able to pick up votes in every aspect of the, of the country. But I think what the country from all the big data I've looked at and the voters I've talked to, especially people that voted for Donald Trump that are now disillusioned or swing voters that in the end, you know, just close their eyes and pick somebody or even Democrats that need to be motivated in this race. They want somebody to be able to speak to America's better angels and say how they're going to get the country healed again and moving again and getting work done. Because as of right now, most Americans that are swing voters 
think our democracy and our republic is broken. And it can't do the big things and it can't do them well. And I think whoever can speak to that, how do they unify the country to accomplish the big goals? Whoever can do that well in an aspirational way and say why they fit that and Donald Trump doesn't or their Democratic opponent doesn't is going to win this race. Those are wise words. I wish everyone would listen to that. <laughs> I'm going to talk about today, but thanks so much for being on tonight. Thanks. So great to be with you. Thank you. Yes, but before I have my next question, I want to tell you, I've never played golf in my life, but I completely understood your analogy. That probably shows how uh, good an analogy was and, and good a um, speaker you are, an analyst. Uh, well, my next question is kind of about the presidential race in a macro sense. Um, our politics are more and more nationalized, and it seems like this primary is very national where people are going on CNN town halls and Fox News town halls and and, you know, big shows like The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Um, but still, there is a calendar and a process where Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina are, are very critical to the process. Um, do you think there's a way where a candidate can be 1% to 5% in the polls but really be doing well getting caucus voters in Iowa and then, you know, finish out of nowhere first or second and then get, say, the news cycle that Pete – but it has had the uh, past, say, two weeks. Um, is that a strategy a candidate could use? Um, I think that, that you can, by, by turning out people, you can add a percentage, maybe two or three points to your score, but you can't go from 8 or 9% to 19% or 21% in overnight or in a matter of two days without it showing up in the polls. You'll see that momentum starting to build in the polls if that's actually happening. I think the debates actually, as I said earlier, are going to be more important. I think debates are going to be more important in winnowing the field down than the caucus, than Iowa caucus is and the New Hampshire primary is. I think more candidates will get out of the race after the debates through the fall than will, will be left in the race after Iowa and New Hampshire. I think that's going to be the winnowing factor. But I think as you'll see this, that I think the the thing that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden have to be aware of, if somebody else in of the field, whether it's Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or somebody else, happens to win Iowa or New Hampshire, and they don't finish for Bernie or or Biden don't finish first, that candidate is probably well on their way to winning the nomination. If a candidate, if one of those candidates wins even by one point. And it's not Bernie or, or as I say, or not Bernie or Biden. That candidate has huge momentum, and momentum in presidential races, in the primaries, matters way more than money. Momentum matters way more than money. Yes, and I think we're seeing that so far in this race. Candidates then building attention like a, a snowball downhill. Well, you mentioned Fox News, and we've seen a debate kind of within the Democratic Party. Do they or don't they go on Fox News? Uh, in the past week or two, uh, Bernie Sanders went on Fox News, got a lot of good press for it. And it sounds like now maybe more candidates are looking at doing that, although some people in, in, on the left are kind of criticizing that. Where do you stand on um, candidates crossing the media aisle, if you will, and, and campaigning to the other party's base? 
So I, I have a bit of a, I would recommend a bit of a hybrid strategy on that. So I, I think candidates should go and anywhere they can get an audience, whether it's Fox News or radio, or whatever, they should go to it. They should seek it and go to it and say what they want to do. And if they're confronted with hard questions, then they can handle them well. That's going to help them. So I think wherever candidates can go, include Democratic candidates can go, they should go to, including Fox News. On the other hand, I completely understand why the Democratic Party doesn't want to give credibility of a debate to Fox News, who has conducted themselves in many ways, like a propaganda arm in many ways, of this administration of the Republican Party. And you could say the same thing. The Republicans didn't hold a, didn't hold a debate on MSNBC in 2016. They held meld debates on 20, in 2016 on MSNBC. And so I say candidates individually, go do it. Democratic Party, you know, I wouldn't sanction it as an official, give them a sanction of an official debate to give them credibility in this cycle for the reason I mentioned. Yes, I think that would just have fun and tell Fox News, you can have a debate but you can have it in any Mexican country besides Mexico and let them puzzle, you know, puzzle on that for a while. Um, Tim, I think, has one more question, so I'm going to pass it real quick to Tim. Yes, sir. I, I wanted to ask you a little question about Republican presidential politics, since obviously you you know a little bit about Republican presidential politics. Um Governor Hogan up there in Maryland, he's got like the second highest approval rating of any governor in this country in one of the very bluest states we could imagine in this country. Uh, would there be room for him to mount a challenge to Donald Trump in the primaries, or that, would that be a fool's errand? I I, I think that uh, one, if, I, if he were asking me my advice on it, I'd say you should run because there's nothing to lose to run in this race. There's, he's, he's finished his term. He's finishing his term. He'll finish his term. He can't run again. He's going no other place in this. He could, he could stand up and advocate for here's the Republican Party I believe in, which is in contrast to Donald Trump. And he can use fiscal issue, issues. He can use international issues. He can use issues of integrity. He can use a whole slew of issues to argue Here's the Republican Party, what stands for from my vantage point, and it's not what he does. Now, the odds of him succeeding because of Donald Trump's favorability and approval rating among Republicans, the odds are low. But in my view, he only he only can get himself he only can because the media will cover it. If if he gets if Governor Hogan gets in that race, the media will cover it, and then he could push Donald Trump to debate. And can you imagine if there was a one-on-one debate in the Republican primary between Governor Hogan and Donald Trump arguing about what does oh, the Republican Party stand yeah. for? It would The media would love that. And so I think there's no downside, even if you probably will lose. But give it a shot. And the interesting thing is New Hampshire independents can vote in the Republican primary. And New Hampshire has mm-hmm. surprised a lot of people in a lot of presidential races. So give it a shot. That's what I say. If that's if he were asking me. Mm-hmm. Um, what, 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 you know, I've, I've always relied in, in over 50 years of political activity of relying on my gut. What, what does your gut tell you? Is somebody going to mount such a challenge to the president or is Bill Weld it? 
Um, my, uh, so Bill, well, I think Bill Weld's going to be a better candidate than a lot of people think. I don't think he's got a real shot, but I think he's going to be a better, better candidate than many people think. And he's actually popular with a lot of sort of, uh, disillusioned Republicans in New Hampshire. I think governor Hogan would be a much, much stronger candidate in this race. Um, but you know, I, I, I still believe that if, additional going back to the question you asked me earlier that the democrats hold hearings and those hearings sort of put a put a, a target on donald trump more than it exists today then i'll see then you'll see somebody like hogan get in the race excellent analysis i appreciate that uh let me send it back My to pleasure. david now david well i didn't have a question until tim asked such a good set of questions and now i have a follow-up could there be a scenario where Larry Hogan runs, runs well, doesn't quite win the thing, and the Democrats uh, elect someone like Bernie Sanders that's a little further to the left, and a candidate like you know Larry Hogan that now has a ton of name ID could run an independent candidacy and, if not win, be a real factor in the race where he uh, decides which um, way states go? Well um... – if if <laughs> we're going, if we've got a parlor game going. Um, so <laughs> if that was to happen, if that was to happen, the what would end up happening is, in all likelihood, the race would go into the House of Representatives to decide who the president was, because I think Larry oh. Hogan would take the the race would be close. There would be a base of support for Bernie Sanders, a base of support for Donald Trump, and and. He would take Hogan would probably take enough states that nobody would get to 270. Then the House of Representatives would decide who's president of the United States. The House of Representatives, which is seated after the 2020 election. So there's another reason why the 2020 election is really important. Yes. And And you know what? After it all. You know, the other interesting thing about that, if that happened, the Senate decides who the vice president is. Oh, so the Senate picks the vice president and the House picks the president when nobody wins an electoral college wins. Wow, that that, that would be bizarre because there's a decent chance that then you'd have divided government because I can't see the Democrats not winning the presidency and yet somehow winning the Senate. And then the House just doesn't seem like it's going to flip back uh, unless something changes drastically. I guess there could be a scenario when after that vote, uh, Nancy Pelosi walks out in the the red coat and the sunglasses, and she's president because she knows how to get you know whip up votes in the house better than anybody. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, let me give you. Let me. I was thinking about this after you said you don't golf, but do you hunt? No, you hunt but I know all? enough. I live in the south. <laughs> okay, so let me give you an now. Let me go give you an analogy about hunting in this. Um, and I, I'm a gun, I'm a gun owner, but I also believe in gun reform that we should have. As most gun owners in Texas do, we believe that you should be able to have a gun, but you should all, we should also have common sense gun reform, like universal background checks and all those things. So Nancy Pelosi, there's two kind of people that hunt, and Nancy Pelosi is one kind, and Donald Trump is the other kind. And this this is why Nancy Pelosi is so good at her job and so good at what I think her plan is as she goes from the house moving forward. There's one, the type of hunter that gets in the vehicle or gets out there and starts popping off a bunch of shots immediately. They just start shooting, 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 whatever. They just want to use up as much ammo as they can and just do whatever they can, shoot whatever they can. 
That's Donald Trump. Then there's the person that sits in a deer blind or a duck blind for four days, doesn't ever shoot a shot, and waits for that one moment and then pulls the trigger. That's Nancy Pelosi. Mm. <laughs> Efficient. Wow. Um, well, I want to ask you just th- – this is kind of that open-ended question we'd like to close on. You mentioned your column. Uh, just tell our listeners anything you got coming out, where people can read you and find out uh, or watch you and find out your thoughts. Sure, they can check. I post all ABC, – abcnews.com posts a column on there, but they can go to my Twitter handle, which is at Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, like the gospel, at Matthew J. Dowd, all one word, Matthew J. Dowd, D-O-W-D. And I post columns once every couple of weeks on my Twitter. And as I said, ABC News has them. I did one last week um, on the comparison between Nixon and, and Donald Trump. I did one a couple of weeks ago on how people ought to run conscious campaigns, to kind of taking the idea of conscious capitalism which is the idea that we can have a capitalist society, but we should treat people well. And I said we should apply the same thing in campaigns, which is take vow of integrity. Don't treat your, don't treat your opposition as an enemy. Treat, treat them as your opponent. And all, all sorts of things, figure out a way to heal the country. And so people can find those on my Twitter handle. They can go to abcnews.com. Yes, well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And hopefully sometime in the future, we can call on you again. That'd be great. Let's do it in the fall after we have a after we have four or five debates under our belt. That sounds, that sounds great. Thank okay. you, sir. Thank, Thank you very take, much. Take take care, y'all. Bye. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. All right, Matthew Dowd, ABC News, Catherine's all the time, kind of telling us what goes on. Because Catherine, I take it that's kind of your number one news source uh, between the it View is. and, and uh, Sunday morning. Uh, and you like it. So that's good to uh, have you keep tabs on the, just the incredible um, political mind of Matthew Dowd. Well, guys, we tried to get to the buy-sell hold, but we had something else we want to talk about. I, I think we got these two candidates, one of the heavy hitters. Um, let's try another week. We'll talk about Tim Ryan and uh, Seth Moulton, and, and maybe we'll figure out the mystery on is or is not Mike Gravel in the race yet. But let's talk about this morning consult. Um, they really did approval ratings on every statewide politician at the top shelf, all the senators and all the governors. But they had these findings, and it's all but like three or four governors in America have really, you know, fairly decent approval ratings. Only uh, like – we try to see how many candidates are upside down uh, in this. i got to see see all. Um, let me try to find that number. It looks like three – Three candidates are what you call upside down that have stronger disapprovals than approvals. Even, you know, Ralph Northam with his um, issues that have come on recently, he's still right side up by uh, four points. So it's um, Gina Raimondo, uh, yeah, Raimondo of Rhode Island, Ned Lamont of Connecticut, and Matt Bevan of Kentucky are upside down. Um, first, I want to ask the, the global question. Catherine, why do you think all these governor's candidates – are so popular right now, or are polling well at least? I think people like their um, their homegrown leaders. Um, I mean, I you know I grew up in Michigan. I lived there for you know most much of my life, and uh, even Republican governors, even in my extremely Democratic household, 
we all we like our Republican governors, Milliken, um, uh, what's his name, Romney. We're we're all popular. I think we we like our, you know, just like voters always say, you know, are like like if you ask them if they believe in term limits, they do, except for their congressman or their senator. So I just think people tend to like want to find the best in their leader in their local leader. Yes. Tim, your thoughts on these governors uh, polling, you know, fairly well. Yeah. Well, Catherine, Catherine uh, said a a lot of it uh, that I was thinking governors are closer to the people than the people in Washington, DC are, or they feel closer to the people. Um, and if the services in the state are good, the roads are in pretty good shape, and the economy especially is good, governors and and legislators will actually get more of a benefit in the way of polling out of that sort of thing than than Congress and, and even the president would. Um, there are actually four governors who are underwater. Uh, Kate Brown of Oregon is the other one. Um, I, I, I did want to talk about not how good they're doing, but one who is just not doing well. well. You mentioned Governor and Beck. him. We'll we'll get into him um, because I, I want to uh, kind of share my theory on this, and then I'll come right back to you with that. Um, I think that really it's it's we're kind of still in a Democratic trend, so a lot of Democratic governors. Are, are you know doing well and the economy is helping them now there are the three which probably have their own issues and i'm not up on rhode island and connecticut state politics and nor um oregon and i think what happened there is she has a higher approval than um ralph northrum she just has a higher disapproval too right. um but right. this is why i think some of the republican governors are doing good if they're they're republican politicians like donald trump but if they're good with things like words and um, treating people with a modicum of respect, then they're going to look great compared to Donald Trump. I mean, you take, you know, just pick a governor at random, they look like a genius compared to Donald Trump because they don't just say crazy things and they don't do crazy things and they probably look like they have tons of tact. Uh, they, they look like more of an executive because of that. Um, now, there is one exception to that, and that would be the least popular governor in the country, uh, and he is as Trumpian as you get. And, uh, Tim, tell us about Matt Bevin. Well, um, he got elected, first of all, in a close race. Uh, he was very, very, very conservative, almost a fringe-type candidate. Um of course, he's got to run this year. That's one reason he is in some big trouble. But uh, the residents of that state are not happy at all with how he's handled things like Medicaid expansion. He's just he he's just uh, rolled it back essentially when the former governor uh, had it in place. And you know we've talked about this before. People do not like to have a benefit taken away from them once they have it. And Kentucky is a state where people really could use Medicaid and the Medicaid expansion. And so this governor is pushing things 
in the opposite direction. Uh, he's doing a lot of uh, also faith-based stuff that people don't like. He's doing a lot of stuff with education that people don't like. It seems like all this guy's major decisions have been decisions that really the majority of the population, even those that voted for him, don't like. And being that he won very close, being that he is probably going to draw some heavyweight opposition, I think this guy is in big trouble. I, I think he may very well uh, lose his reelection. Catherine, I agree with Tim that he's in trouble for his race. Do you think his brand is so toxic that he actually hurts uh, Republicans both above, i.e. Donald Trump and possibly uh, Mitch McConnell, and down below at the state house and state senate level? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Kentucky's a pretty red state. Um, but I, I sh- I'm sh- I think, I, I, like Matthew Dowd said and like we said, it kind of depends on who the who the presidential candidate is. If they if they have a lot of momentum, they may be able to uh, carry not only the top of the ticket but uh, but have an impact on the bottom of the ticket as well or the lower parts of the ticket. So I think a lot's going to depend on where we stand in uh, you know September October of 2020. Yes. And then I want to talk about one or really two more uh, governors that just took office that won really controversial campaigns, uh, defeated more dynamic candidates, honestly, than themselves. And that would be Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, who has a really strong approval rating, all things considered. And Brian Kemp here in Georgia, who has a more solid approval rating than one might you know, think, given how much you know, cloud there was over how he – um, handled the election as Secretary of State, and then, you know, this controversial abortion bill. Um, Tim, how have these two gentlemen been able to have a higher approval rating than their uh, election would have suggested? Well, you know, this this morning consult, I want to mention this, it's, it's kind of a little deceiving because the three choices you have, favorable, unfavorable, or I've never heard of the guy, so I'd like to ask, how is it that 29% of the respondents have never heard of Brian Kemp? And he just took oh, – how, how after that huge – the biggest governor's race possibly, the most watched governor's race in the country right here in our state, and 29% of the respondents didn't exactly know who he was, even though I guess they voted. I I don't know. One one difference uh, also in Kemp and and DeSantis. Kemp is at forty eight percent approval, which is pretty close to what Brian Kemp uh, actually got in total votes. While DeSantis is running about a fifty seven percent approval rating, uh, he is actually built on. On his election night totals, I'd say he's in a lot better shape there than Kemp with his 48% is here. Well, what what do you think about that, Catherine, when they say 48% like Kemp, 23% don't like him, and 29% are saying they never heard of him? What What is that about? I, I don't understand that either. I, I wondered about those numbers, and that is a kind of a strange – um, 
question, right? It's, I it mean, is. it seems like uh, never heard of is not the best way. Like, you know, you can have no opinion or you can, you know, but never heard of is, is strange. And especially, like you said, in, when we had such a um, prominent and uh, volatile yeah. election, to uh, yeah. have never heard of him seems like a strange response. Um, so I don't know what that means. But it is David, can you explain yeah. it? It, yeah. it kind of says a lot about the person push, pushing the buttons than it does the person being asked about <laughs> like, how well do you know things? Um, you know, like you could ask somebody, hey, what's your pr- opinion of England? And somebody goes, I've never heard of it. That really says a whole lot about them than it does how things are going to England. Um, now, you know, Brian Kemp, he's, he's about at his vote total. Now, one thing he did keep a promise on was the teacher raise of, of 3%, but he, it really didn't seem to help him much. So if, if himself or any of his uh, – Advisors are listening. I'd say keep trying. Just go ahead and push to a five percent, an eight percent. Let's just see if you can get that number up by, you know, boosting those approval or, or teacher raises. Because a lot of those Republican governors in Oklahoma and Kentucky and uh, in West Virginia got in a lot of trouble because they didn't. Arizona, they didn't raise teacher salaries. So, um, you know, that that could be a an angle to look at. Um, well, I want to thank Matthew Dowd for coming on. Uh, yeah, you can tell I, I have a, a, a horse in that race, if you will. Um, I want to thank Matthew Dowd for coming on. And until next week, it's been the Cozy Vine. Good everybody. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people.